Father, we uh, thank you so much for our church, for gathering. The, we have this tradition that's fairly organized on Sunday morning of coming in and sitting down and looking forward and having our Bibles on our laps. And we trust, Lord, that these are encouraging times. We trust that, um, that we can grow from this. As we study the Word, we believe that your Word is truth. And we believe that it changes us. And we believe that it has good answers. And I just pray that you would stir our minds and our hearts today with this, uh, this uh, difficult topic that we um, touch down on today. Guide our conversation, guide my thoughts, and quiet my heart as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, lately, there have been um, some movies out about slavery. There's been kind of a renewal of interest in slavery, and when we think of slavery, what do we think of? We think of the African slaves being commandeered, kidnapped, abused, put in the holds of ships, and all of that horrible history that is a reality of, of the past, to the degree that even our founding fathers had slaves, they marketed people, and so forth. Interesting, isn't it? Um, and so... Now, when we look back on that, we have a little bit of a sense of like, whoa, how could that happen? How could people just watch that? How could they even be involved in that? And um, when you see the movies and the depiction, and I didn't take the time to remember what some of them are. There's been some current movies out in the last two years. I would say there's been multiple movies out about slavery. They're, they're very difficult. It's very difficult. I mean, it's horrible to watch. But I, in my old age, I'm getting soft or something. I can't even, I don't even like to watch like, or hear. Like last night, there was a 20, was it 2020 Dateline investigative. And they were telling what these guys did to this 16-year-old girl. And I don't, I like have to leave the room. I can't, I don't like to hear that stuff anymore. Watch sin. It, it, it just, I don't know. It's upsetting so much. It grieves you. And very few things can be overstated as more heinous than slavery and the abuses that went on. And so, doesn't it seem like there's an obvious thou shalt not that was left out of Scripture, doesn't it? It's like, how come there wasn't a thou shalt not own people or have slaves? And and in fact, as you study the Word, it's almost the opposite. There's, we'll look up some of these verses. There's significant detail in the regulation of how to own a slave. And so we might argue, some might argue, as I've written here, that there were some missed opportunities by the writers of Scripture to condemn slavery. Think about it. Was there a more perfect opportunity, for example, in the life of Joseph or the uh, leading of Moses leading the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt or Paul's letter to Philemon about his slave Onesimus that Paul evidently had encountered in prison and led to Christ? We don't know exactly how that unfolded, but it appears that Onesimus was a runaway slave who had stolen from his master and was actually culpable for the death penalty because of that. Ends up getting imprisoned. Paul's in prison and evidently leads Onesimus to Christ and he becomes a son in the faith. And now he, he knew Philemon evidently and wrote him a letter asking him to treat him as a brother in Christ. It's amazing. 
What an opportunity for Paul to have a couple of verses and say, and this damnable practice must end. You know? So, we have to remember, because you've got to be careful sitting around talking about why the Bible doesn't say something. Who do you think you are? You know? And so, Psalm 19.7, what does it say? The law of the Lord is perfect. All right? Let's look up Psalm 119, 137 real quick. Somebody read it as soon as you get it. Go, go. Okay, is that 137 of 119? That was 197, wasn't it? Dan, did you read 119, 137, and 138? Somebody read it. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't turn to it. I was drinking coffee. Go, Bonnie. There you go. Righteous are you, O Lord. And your law is right. Okay, so let's all understand this, please. At Fellowship Bible Church, if nowhere else. The Bible doesn't get anything wrong. And the Holy Spirit didn't make a mistake in guiding the writers of Scripture. So we have to take the Bible for what it says, and there's a way of understanding it. Now, let me give a disclaimer about this hour. I did not do much research about the difference between slavery in the Old Testament, slavery at the time of Christ, as opposed to the African-American European history of slave trading of the 18th and 19th centuries. That is a huge topic, and there are experts, and there's big books written on it. And this week, with the funeral and a bunch of things coming into this class, I, didn't, I just didn't make it. I meant to look up a little bit more to be able to contrast, but I think I can safely say this from the little bit that I did read. That, especially at the time of Christ, when Rome ruled, the statistics of people who were in the category of servanthood or slavery is really significant. And there was, it was difficult to tell who was a slave and who wasn't in the daily exchanges of life. As you went about town, you couldn't necessarily tell how somebody was dressed or what color their skin was or anything, whether they were in servitude to someone else. All right? There was lots of that. We also know in the Old Testament that there was some level of acceptability where when God's people would overwhelm another wicked pagan nation, that one of the things they would take as spoils, sometimes God would say, God would even say, you don't have to wipe them out. Sometimes he did say wipe them out, remember? And that's a real tough thing for people to swallow. The short answer to that is, by the way, in the Old Testament under law, God's focus was law and God's focus was the purity of his people Israel. And the people groups that he wiped out, he simply used his people or even other wicked nations as instruments of his wrath. You see, the bottom line is God always wipes out sinners. The wages of sin is always death. And in the Old Testament, what you see is the physical response to that. Elijah and the prophets of Baal, for example. Um, Samuel hewing Agag in pieces before the Lord. 
All right? And so God would use righteousness as his instrument of wrath because his patience had run out. Right now, in the New Testament, under the law of love, we are commanded not to do that to our enemies, and God did that on purpose, and he changed the way he's dealing with sinners, and there is a, another set of patience. There's patience in the Old Testament, too. If you read in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, I think it is, when God told Abraham he would be bringing him into a promised land and give him a new land, he said, but it's going to be four hundred years from now before that happens because the sin of the Amalekites has not filled up yet. And so God was going to give those wicked people 400 more years to see if they would repent. Nineveh is another example. Ultimately, Nineveh did get destroyed, but they held off their destruction by repenting under prophet Moses. And so people really struggle with this idea that you could put the sword to people, and that's not something we're supposed to do. This was one of our topics earlier, so I'm, I'm digressing. Um, Jeff dealt with it early in the summer. So I hope you got in on that and that, that that was clear to you. All right, so let's just go to the scriptures now, and let's look at what are some of the kind of disturbing scriptures as to the regulations for slavery. So it is accurate to say that the Bible gives actually regulations for how to treat slaves. So the Bible accepts the reality of slavery. Now, all that being said, there were different kinds of slaves. That's what I was trying to say a minute ago. And I think that it is best, by and large, not to picture the slavery that the Israelites had with their slaves. Um, it maybe was a little bit how Egypt treated Israel, was a little bit how the African slaves were treated in, in the Americas in the 18th and 19th century. But by and large, at the time of Christ in Rome and when the epistles are being written, that kind of bondage and slavery um, ha was not, it didn't, it didn't look as much like that. There were abuses, I'm confident of that, but there were all kinds of levels of slaves and there was even people who, because they couldn't get work, would go to a wealthy guy and say, hey, I'll, I'll sell myself to you for the next five years. Because he couldn't feed his family, he couldn't feed himself. And so the guy said, yeah, it's a great deal. Wash my car, vacuum, you know, vacuum out my garage and stuff and to organize things. And, and you can f eat here and you can live back in that shanty in the back and you do whatever I say. I'm your master, you're my slave. But he never beat him and he never wore ankle shackles and things like that. So Exodus 21. Um, and let me read since I'm on mic. And this... Almost this entire chapter is given to the regulation of slaves. And let's talk just a few minutes about it. So this is what he says. So this is coming off of chapter 20. We were in 21 in the service a minute ago. Um, now these are the rules that you shall set up before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. So how does that strike you? What do you learn right away? Somebody say some things. It's okay to buy a human being. You can be for sale, right? That's pretty weird to our mindset. Okay, so then he says, um, but then he said, he shall serve six years. In the seventh year, he shall go what? He shall go free. So God did regulate it. So one thing you have to say about it is that after six years, you got, you got away free and clear. Go ahead, Tim. This is a Hebrew slave. It's not talking about the Nope, that's right. That's right. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. Verse 3. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. 
If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, okay, so this brings all kinds of pictures to our minds, right? Of the, of the just heartbreaking reality of the weeping and wailing of slaves as a father is sold and taken away or a mother is separated from children and the horrific abuses that went on, right? And now here what he's doing is regulating. And a wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. This is that bond slave piercing the ear on the master's door jam. And it was his, the master's mark. And you're now my property. Okay, now, one thing we won't have time to talk about, and you need to understand, is that throughout the topic of Scripture on slavery, that this gets rolled over into the spiritual world. And that when Paul talks about the bondservant, okay, uh, I don't even have this referenced in the notes. This is a huge topic, this whole thing of slavery and servanthood in Scripture. When Paul regularly, uh, I think, in, let's just look like at Romans 1, for example, I think there. Uh, let's just read how he does it. And, and you'll, you'll be reminded of it. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. That's how he starts Romans. Almost every one of his epistles, Paul starts out like that. Paul, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Interestingly enough, James, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus, did that. That's pretty incredible. He grew up in the same household with Jesus. And later on, when he writes his epistle, he says, I am a servant of this Jesus, this doulos. And there's, that's another whole interesting subject. And if you want more, if you want a really thorough Bible study on how this translates into the spiritual world, how am I a servant of Jesus Christ? How am I in my salvation? How does that bring me under Christ, and I'm, I'm no longer my own, but I've been bought with a price, and I'm his servant. The word literally should be slave, and in fact, the book is John MacArthur, it's called Slave. I should have brought it and hold it up. It's just called Slave by John MacArthur. It's easy to buy, Amazon or Christian book, and that is a thorough study of how slavery in the spiritual realm works. That's not really what we're talking about today. We're talking about why didn't God condemn people owning people? All right. And so in back to back to Exodus 21, this passage here about the servant who doesn't want to leave his wife. He loves his wife. He loves his kids. And so he at least says he loves his master. It says if he loves his master, maybe he didn't have to do both. If he just didn't want to leave his wife and his kids, he could become a bond servant, take the mark of his master, and then from then on, his master owned him. And now another thing that's interesting is that some of these, especially bond servants, were even included in inheritances. They received inheritance from uh, their master, and this translates into the spiritual world as well, where they had some of them had the same rights as sons. Does that sound familiar? Who's the who's the legitimate born son? His name is Jesus Christ, 
And who comes along and is able to take the mark of the master and is given full rights of sonship? And so these, these are spiritual truths that just explode with meaning when you understand what's going on. He again goes on in verse 7, Exodus 21, and there's more regulation. When a man sells his daughter and so forth, she's not supposed to be put up on the block like a man would be and so forth. There's some protection of life given. Um, and let's turn to Leviticus now. There's another regulation. So I'm not going to comment too much, but I want you to see um, that actually because of time... Um, let's just look at 21.16 while we're in 21. Yes, yeah. Okay, yes, I was trying to avoid it. Um, when a man strikes his slave, 21.20. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. Um, what does the NIV say? Punished. Punished. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. I take it, Tim, and I didn't, I didn't exhaustively research it, I take it to mean that the guy survives. Okay, it wasn't that he lived two or three days, then he died from it. Either um, way, it appears that it's somewhat permissible under this verse to beat another human being because they're your property. I have no answer. I don't know. And like I said, I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't able to do an exhaustive study or enough of a deep study to come to grips with a good answer on that. Um, I don't know if anybody has a real good answer. It's, it's the way it was. And what you have here is the regulation, at least, of keeping that from becoming um, out of control. Um, so I, I'm sorry. Dave, go ahead. That's right. Civil government, all the time. It was common, right? Get a stick, take him downtown, and wail the fire out of him, and that was acceptable. Everybody understood that. Yeah, I, I don't know. You know, Proverbs talks about it too. Using a stick, um, I think it literally means a stick. So, um, yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, one of the things that what Jeff, what Jeff is saying is that in in they were touching upon this in our message this morning in the, that there was a rate the eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth that is in the message today if you weren't here and the idea is that the Bible does regulate it that it's not out of control but it still lends itself to the obvious question why does he even allow it so one thing that I did read is that it was widely it was a widely practiced thing, and that if they had immediately cut off the slave function, it would have totally disrupted all of the society. But it's still not a good answer. You think, but I often wonder why doesn't why isn't abortion mentioned in the Bible? How come he doesn't say, "Thou shalt not kill your unborn babies"? There's principles, and there's. There's that kind of thing. And we're going to see there's some principles here that ultimately completely negate the right to have slaves today, of course. All right. So there's a few more. Um, uh, I, I apologize for not having better answers to that. I knew that would come up. Um, uh, go ahead. And I'm not trying to play. You know, I, I didn't take it that way. To, to poke the pastor here today. But I, I feel like as Christians, we really, it's critical to have a really good answer for this because 
right now in our culture, the, the, the homosexual group is pointing to this as an example of how the, the Bible doesn't really mean what it says. That's if, right. If the Bible got it wrong on slavery, then maybe it got it wrong on some of those other... Right, exactly. Passages. Now, that's a really good point, and, it's, and, I, and I wish I had a better answer. I'm not, I don't know of anybody who articulates a really good answer other than this is how it was, and, and under Mosaic law, it was regulated with the respect of human dignity in a way that no other culture and no other system regulated. Now, why it didn't outright condemn it is known to the mind of God. And I think it's ironic that Exodus 21 is coming right on the heels of this very generation being slaves in Egypt. That's right. And being mistreated, and they get out, and the first thing they want to do is buy slaves. Buy slaves. Yeah, it, it is very interesting. Since we have our Bibles open here, and for the sake of time, um, let's, let's look at, let's add a prohibition. Under point number two, and let your eyes go to 21.16. And notice that he does say in 21.16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him, look what it says. He shall be put to death. I think I commented in my notes, didn't I, there, that that verse alone would have wiped out the African-American slave trading or Native American slavery. Right. Because what they did was they would go in and, you know, throw nets over people and grab them and shove them in the hold of a ship. And off they go. They kidnap. This is a prohibition against kidnapping and holding someone against their will for no legal reason. They didn't break any laws. And notice to me that that is so serious. Notice in the text that is so serious that they're to be put to death. That called for the death penalty. And now here's a question that I can't answer as well. Is how come God-fearing men who studied their Bibles in, in American history didn't read that and recognize that the, the slaves that they owned had been kidnapped against their will? They are. They're sinful. I'll tell you one thing you have to watch for is more than we realize, we are susceptible to being pressed into the mindset of a culture. And you can, you can argue that why didn't the church in Germany react to the slaughter of Jews? So here's what I would say. Why are we sitting in here this morning when abortion's going on at the rate that it's going on? It's because it's culturally acceptable. It's heinous and we don't like it, but go ahead, Dave. We live in a condition of, of a part of heart all the time. We do, don't we? That's right. No, that's a really good point. I mean, we live in an incredibly flawed system. And we, half the time, interact with that flawed system in flawed ways. That being said, Tim, I agree with you 100% that, okay, you could argue, why is the Bible this way? And the only thing I could point to in answer to that is the Bible didn't get it wrong. It does regulate. And back under point of regulation, notice, for example, the Code of Hammurabi exacted no penalty for the murder of a slave. The law of Moses did. The Code of Hammurabi exacted no penalty for injuring a slave, but the law of Moses did. The Code of Hammurabi held the life of a slave to be less than the life of a freeborn man, but the law of Moses valued them equally. So when you do encounter the Word of God, even though we could, in our human mindset, wish that there was a different way of looking at slavery, that in this context, 
They were real people and they were equal in value to everybody else. They were just in the slave condition. Uh, Jeff. Slavery in the modern context versus... It, it, it paralleled the development of evolutionary theory. Huh. And the whole business about um, parading people from what, we cons- what, what some in the West considered to be subhuman yes. in front of scientists who then claimed that they were justified because they weren't really more yes. that was Yes, that was the mindset they adopted then. Right. One of the big things you tour when you go there is Cape Coast, which is where the slave castle was, which was which was the castle was in roots in the movie. And here in the slave castle, the floor above where the holding pen was, where they had the slaves, was an Anglican church yeah, where wow. they worshipped, and there was a rector there. Huh. Can you imagine? Yeah, that's unbelievable. You know, uh, there's so many interesting was, things like that. Okay, so what? saying that these people underneath yes. were no longer human and they reinterpreted the Bible and said that Genesis didn't really say yes. what said. That's right. Put these two together and then you can see how Now you have a train wreck. Yeah. So did you hear what Jeff was saying? He was saying at this time, one of the dynamics that you have to recognize is that at the time of African and American slavery, you had the the onset of evolutionary theory taking over. And so you had people rationalizing in their head that this was these were less than homo sapiens. They were subhuman. And that was common thought. But think about Australia, where they shot aborigines, the aboriginal people. They would hunt them and kill them. I don't know if they ate them or not, but they would shoot them because they thought they were subhuman. There's lots of stories. And that's the kind of dynamic. There are a number of inroads here that I... That's the kind of thing I meant in my disclaimer earlier in the lesson, that there's a lot of things written about this and a lot of things you could talk about that I didn't have time to get into, and I apologize for that. On the other hand, I thought that our time could be, will be short even to look at the scriptures on it. And so I was trying to look at the scriptures. It's all good stuff. While we're here, also a prohibition. Notice in 20, under the Ten Commandments, for example, and this would be a contrast with the law of Hammurabi, um, and, and you could argue, okay, look at under 2010 and the regulation for the Sabbath day that it included slaves. All right? So when God said, you're not to work on the seventh day and you're to rest and it's my day, that included even your slaves. Now, that's based upon the sanctity of human life and a relationship with the living God. And so there's, there's totally no basis even though Scripture regulates some use of slaves and the regulation of the treatment of slaves, clearly in Scripture, slaves are never seen as subhuman. They are always seen as real people. And in the New Testament, even that much more. There is a dignity and a reality to the fact that those slaves were brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. And that's a picture to think about. Coming to church on Sunday morning and some guy who's sitting over on the other side of church, you own him. And he totally belongs to you. He's your slave. Okay? But that doesn't mean that you beat him. And that's the kind of thing that comes out of the passage. Okay, so what I wanted you to see that in the prohibition was at least two times in Scripture, he said they're not allowed to work. And there are some other prohibitions in the regulations. They, they cross over into prohibitions. You're not allowed to do certain things to your slave. But the main thing was you're not, that I think, 
is applicable to the African-American history of slavery in our, in our American history is 2116, where you are not allowed to kidnap and hold against their will. Let's go to the New Testament now. And you can look up some of the other verses that we didn't get to. Let's go to the New Testament and let's see what some of the instruction are to slaves and to, and to masters here. All right. And then draw a few conclusions and then we'll head into the second service. First Timothy 1, 8 through 10. Now let's just uh, go ahead and take time to read some of these passages. First Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Notice what Paul does here. He's making a list of wickedness. Abomination, abomination or abominable people or behaviors that the law of God confronts, all right, and condemns. And in the list, sinners, the end of verse 9, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, now verse 10, 1 Timothy 1.10, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, the next word is, in the ESV, is enslavers. In the, I'm sorry, go ahead. Slave dealers. And what is it in, what translation in the, the Jewish commentary? Yep, slave dealers, it says. The NIV says slave traders, right? So the NIV says slave traders. Um, the King James says men stealers. Translates the word men stealers. Alright, so now you have a New Testament verse that completely condemns anything that went on in American history. Right there in the list. I mean, could you ask for a clearer verse? Maybe. But clearly it is condemned that you are not allowed to go grab somebody, steal them, and sell them to somebody else into slavery. It is absolutely prohibitive in Scripture. It is an abomination and it's sinful. So you can't say that the Bible is silent about slavery. So the very premise of our question that we're answering today, why doesn't the Bible, what did I say, condemn slavery? The Bible does condemn the kind of slavery that we think about in American history. I think that everything about the way we think about American history is clearly condemned in Scripture. Clearly. Human trafficking today that goes on. By the way, that's something else. I didn't look up the statistics. I believe it's accurate to say that there are as many or more people in held in bondage and slavery today than ever before in history. It's, it's unbelievable. The, the statistics on who's uh, actual... I'm talking about men, women, and children in abusive slave situations around the world. That's another contrast between Islam and Christianity, for example. All right. So Paul identifies enslavers or men stealers or slave traders right along with murderers. Okay? Colossians 3. Let's just go to Colossians 3. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians 3, 22 through 25. Look what he says. Bond servants. Okay? Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So one thing this clearly does is make sure that it, it makes equal with any other human being on the planet 
these bondservants or slaves. There is nothing in the Bible that would allow in any, at any level to consider slaves being subhuman. All right? Now, I think that what we apply this mostly in our culture is to the employee-employer relationship, is how we often look at this. And in fact, in many of these servantile positions that are referenced in the New Testament, the, the servants did get paid. The slaves did get paid. They were compensated. It might not have been much, but they were compensated with housing, they were compensated with food, and they were compensated with a salary. And it was a, it was a different setup and a different thing than um, what we ex- experienced. So, men stealers as wicked was bullet point number one. Paul addresses in Colossians 3, slaves as completely morally responsible and brothers in Christ. I forgot that there were some blanks up ahead. Did you get them? Sabbath day under Old Testament prohibition. Sabbath day is in the blank there. And death penalty in the second bullet point under prohibitions. Okay. Then wicked under our first bullet point under instructions. Brothers. Let me just rattle off. Galatians 3.28. That clearly in the eyes of God, spiritually speaking, says there is neither male nor female, man or man, man or woman, rich or poor, slave or free. It clearly teaches that slaves have complete human dignity and spiritual equality. Complete human dignity and spiritual equality. You might still be in Colossians. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, then, are given instruction and were called to treat slaves justly and fairly. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And I suggested that if a... Christian slave owner, and I think there were Christian slave owners. By the way, you realize that there were African, African slave owners during American history as well. That's an interesting slice of history. There were some Africans that owned slaves, African slaves. They had bought their freedom and then they would get slaves. Another verse that in and, out of, in and of itself undermines completely any form of African American slavery. The idea that a master was to treat his bondservant justly and fairly. You live that out, and that changes everything in the relationship, doesn't it? Colossians, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 7, 20 through 22, Paul encourages slaves to seek freedom. Seek freedom. In 1 Corinthians 7, people were coming to Christ, and the spiritual principle there was to try to just, don't try to change your circumstances, live out Christ wherever you find yourself. If you're in a marriage that's not a very good marriage and you come to Christ, don't seek to get out of that marriage. If you're a servant and you're in bondage, don't seek to get out of that. But in parentheses, he does say, but in the future, if you can get free, get free. I thought that was interesting, you know. And so then in Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, all right, slaves are to think like Christ followers. Masters are to be kind and recognize that there is no partiality with God. Clearly, what Paul is teaching in that passage is that a master is to understand that in the eyes of God, God sees him exactly equally to any servant in his household. All right? So here's our conclusions. The Bible does unequivocally condemn stealing and kidnapping people. 
American and African slavery could not have existed without this atrocity. Clearly, bullet point number two under conclusion, the Bible esteems all people of all ethnicities as equal and created in the image of God. That is completely taught in Scripture. Third bullet point, God's love for the world includes all people everywhere. John 3.16 As does the work of Christ on the cross. This grace of God has appeared to all men, Titus says. The essence of Christ's teaching renders slavery impossible to justify. And you can look up, this is just two samples. 2020 of Matthew is where Jesus said, if you want to be great in my kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. All right, so let's take a master who has a slave. He's called to be a servant to his servant. You see? If you live out what Christ teaches, you cannot. You cannot do what we did in American history. Matthew twenty-two thirty-four through 36 is the golden rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who's my neighbor? Well, my slave is certainly my neighbor. And if I love him as myself, when I sit down to have steak and baked potato, and he's eating husks with the hogs out behind the barn, I do not love him as myself. The, that rule alone would have wiped out. And so that goes back to the question, how come they couldn't get it? How come they couldn't get it? It's possible that someday there will be a generation, like I said, that will look at Pastor Van and his church and say, how could they have sat still during the abortion years? How come they weren't doing more? Why didn't they blow them up or whatever? I don't know what's acceptable. That's not acceptable. I don't think. The teachings of the Apostle Paul and other writers of the epistles make slavery impossible to rationalize in the New Testament. Philippians 2, for example, let each of us esteem others higher than ourselves. Let us have the mind of Christ who took on the form of a servant. So when you came to church, and you think about this, at Zion, the Zion Stone Church in Bakerton, where Fellowship Bible Church started 24 years ago, you can see where there was um, some spots in the stonework where there was an upstairs little balcony and maybe you've been in some of the colonial era churches where they had outside stairways and a small balcony and they allowed the slaves to come up and sit in this little balcony up there and listen in on the message how would you like to be the preacher down there preaching Philippians chapter 2 and look up and see these slaves you would have to fall on your face in repentance wouldn't you you're not, you're not esteeming others higher than yourselves. You are living out the reality that they are not as important as I am. Or they are somehow less than I. Then it becomes convicting when you realize how often do we live out that principle with all kinds of people. All right? All right. Our time is up.